Thank you all for being here. I'm very excited about this event, uh, Seeking Solidarity in a Divided America. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kim Ford Mazrui. I've been here for 20 years, and I run the Center for the Study of Race and Law, as well as uh, teach race and law, constitutional law, and employment discrimination. Uh, I'd like to say a bit about the origins and idea behind this event before I uh, turn to a more formal uh, introduction of our, of our two speakers. Uh, this event is sponsored by the Center for the Study of Race and Law, as well as the Office of Equal Opportunity and Civil Rights, uh, as well as several um, student groups, uh, too many to mention uh, at this point, but we appreciate it. Um, this is part of the university's commemoration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the theme of which this year is Silence as Betrayal. Uh, the chair of the commemorations is Dr. Marcus Martin, the vice president and chief officer of diversity and equity for the university, as well as his outstanding assistant, uh, Megan Faulkner. Uh, the idea behind this is really an idea of two different people that I came onto my awareness that I just thought would be wonderful to bring together. Uh, first, I heard a news story in, I think, December, January 2000, uh, about a year ago, about uh, a tenured political science professor uh, who was fired for something she wrote about Islam. So I thought, oh, okay, someone said something hateful about Muslims and she was fired, but you know, maybe there's a First Amendment issue or a private school, just at least uh, free expression concern here, you know, balance of interests. So uh, when I learned more about the story, um, uh, Professor Larisha Hawkins uh, wore a hijab, headscarf, uh, to embody solidarity with Muslim women uh, and explained, uh, I believe on Facebook, that she was doing so because Christians and Muslims are both people of the book, and as Pope Francis says, they both pray to the same God. Uh, and for that, uh, she was separated from the university. So that just bewildered me, um, and, uh, but also inspired me as someone who uh, is standing up for solidarity, especially uh, with an unpopular group in the United States, even at the risk of losing a tenured position, which believe me is something you don't want to lose. Uh, so, um, uh, and then I also learned that she was now doing a fellowship at UVA, and I just thought, wow, I would love to uh, meet this person, share, uh, share with her. And then, uh, as many of you may have uh, seen a year ago, we had an unpacking privilege event in this very room. I believe five law students spoke, and uh, the only non-law student who spoke was Atia Latif. She got a standing ovation. It was just an amazing, uh, amazing talk. I had actually had the privilege of meeting her already. My friend Barb Ruddy, our Director of Human Resources, had introduced me to her, said that she had seen her speak at the uh, Free Expression Wall downtown and how amazed uh, Barb was by her. I was equally amazed. I saw her speak again at a teach-in. Uh, she later led an entire gathering at the amphitheater. Uh, and I just thought this person is uh, amazing, and wouldn't it be wonderful to bring these two uh, people together? Uh, perhaps the hijab was one connection besides both of their uh, commitment to, uh, to inclusiveness. Uh, Atiyah, as you can see, wears a hijab and uh, has experienced uh, stigma and discrimination throughout her life. 
that was part of the teaching she gave here on, uh, uh, on Central Grounds um, in November. Three days later, the college she lives in, Brown College, had terrorists scrolled on the outside. But she doesn't, uh, she doesn't let it phase her uh, either. In fact, she's written a Huffington Post article whose message is essentially, it's fine with me if you want to call me raghead. Uh, so I just thought we have to bring these two people together and what better occasion than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who's often known primarily for racial civil rights but he was actually much uh, broader than that uh, and so I think it fits the theme of, uh, of the occasion perfectly. So turning to uh, more details about these two people that had already uh, impressed me and uh, since uh, Latif is going first I will uh, describe her first and then I'll turn to Professor Hawkins. Atia Latif is a third year Jefferson Scholar at UVA studying political and social thought with a concentration on Islamic feminism and post-colonialism. Uh, Latif is also chair of the Minority Rights Coalition, chair and founder of World Hijab Day at UVA, and founder and chair of Eliminate the Hate, an anti-hate speech campaign at UVA that gained uh, close to a million supporters. Uh, Latif is a TEDx speaker, which is great, by the way, Google it, uh, a writer for Huffington Post, uh, and a current intern uh, for Kerning Cultures, a podcast uh, about the Middle East. This summer, uh, Latif was given a grant to implement a trauma processing workshop uh, at a refugee center in Morocco. She will also be interning at a Muslim women's rights uh, NGO in DC, uh, and researching best practices for advocacy for Muslim women who have been subject to discrimination. Latif is also a member of the Raven Society at UVA, which selects from the top 1% of UVA students. Uh, Professor Larisha Hawkins, uh, closest to me, is um, a professor of political science and currently the Abd al Qadr visiting fellow at UVA's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Her research engages the intersection of race, religion, and politics, addressing such challenging questions as, what does it look like to live out a constitutional commitment to justice? What does it mean to transcend theoretical solidarity and move to actual embodied solidarity with the oppressed? And what does conscientious citizenship look like? Hawkins received her BA from Rice University and her MA and PhD from the University of Oklahoma. She previously founded and directed the Peace and Conflict Studies program at Wheaton College, uh, where she served for eight years uh, as Associate Professor of Political Science, achieving the rank of tenure. At UVA, Hawkins researches the relationship between race and religion, uh, she is also a scholar on the Race, Faith, and Culture Project and on the Pluralism Project. Hawkins' recent books, both published in 2015, include Prophetic, Priestly, let me see, okay. oh, Prophetic and Priestly, The Politics of Black Catholic uh, Parish, of a Black Catholic Parish, and Jesus and Justice, uh, The Moral Framing of the Black Agenda. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Professor Hawkins and Atiyah Latif. Uh, and before uh, Latif begins speaking, just 
heads up about the format. Uh, they're going to speak at the podium uh, for 15 to 20 minutes or so. And then uh, they will both uh, sit in these two chairs so that the conversation can feel more uh, comfortable uh, during the, the question and answer period. Okay, thank you. Hi, everyone. It's really an honor to be here and speak in front of so many law school students since I'm just a third year and don't really know anything. Um, I kind of thought about quoting Plato in my speech because he has this whole thing where he talks about how wisdom is not knowing anything at all. So I was like, maybe if I tell everyone that I don't know anything, they'll walk away and say that's the smartest thing they've ever heard. And then they'll tell everyone like, oh yeah, that Atiyah girl, she's really a smart one. But I didn't do that. Um, I wanted to talk a lot about um, some of the experiences I've had this past semester after the elections. In particular, last night, um, I was hanging out with a couple friends. We were studying, which means we weren't really studying because it was a couple friends. Um, and one of our friends pulls out his phone and shows us the screen. And on the screen, there's an article about how DACA is probably going to be repealed in a couple weeks and how the immigration situation in the United States isn't really looking good. Um, someone cracks a joke about Trump. Someone else cracks a joke about freeing Melania. And then the conversation goes on. But the only other person in the room who wasn't laughing was one of my friends who was sitting in the corner Googling something frantically on her laptop as though some sort of bomb had just dropped on her. And I walk over to her and I was like, hey, what's going on? What are you looking up? And when I look at her screen, she's looking up DACA. And she's looking up DACA to figure out whether or not her cousin is going to have a work permit, let alone be able to stay in this country in the coming year. So here we are having a conversation and laughing and joking, and here she is trapped in this bubble of panic, and we don't really seem to notice anything that's going on. It seems to be really easy to sort of see right through people these days, or to be apathetic. And when I was sitting down to write this piece and to write this talk, I wanted to unpack that and figure out why it was so easy for people to ignore the problems that others faced. Why that had happened throughout this election for me and for the friends that I had and for the people I loved. And the first thing I started out was this idea of media as a way to dehumanize people and to make us numb to the experiences that others have. So I have a really good friend whose family owns a couple horses. And last summer, one of their horses had to be put down. It was sick, it was dying. And so their father was like, okay, I'm gonna go and sort of make sure that the horse has a peaceful end to their life. And when the girl was really upset about the fact that this had to happen, her dad said, I'll take care of it. And that one word, it, seemed to be all it took to enable the entire family to forget what was happening to give the father leeway and permission to sort of end the life of this animal that was no longer an animal, no longer a beloved member of the family, but an it. One of the graduate students at the University of Colorado, I think her name is Michelle Miser, has a lot to say about what dehumanization does in media and how it plays a role in how we perceive those around us. And she said that all it takes in order for a person 
to violate another person's humanity, to violate a country's statehood, is for us to say that we are superior, is to call another person inferior, is to, de to diminish, diminish their race, to diminish their gender, their sexuality, their identity in any way, is to otherize them and thereby remove them of their humanity. So media headlines is something we can turn to when we're looking at how this plays out in the world today. There are two media headlines that I noticed when I was doing research the other day that I thought really drove the point home. The first one is a headline from the case of Eric Bellucci, who was a mentally ill New York man who killed his parents. And the headline read, son in Staten Island murdered was brilliant, murdering parents was brilliant and athletic, but demons were the death of his family. The second headline in a similar time frame that was put out was one that NBC News ran. And that headline came out during the coverage of Trayvon Martin's case. And that headline said, Trayvon Martin was suspended three times from school. And that was all it said. So we wonder why America post-elections is full of apathetic people, people who are divided, people who think that they know something already about black individuals in this country, people who think that they know something already about Muslims in this country. We wonder why we're so apathetic. We wonder why we're numb to the things that are going on in social media and online when the answer is right in front of us. A Lebanese-American media analyst named Jack Shaheen documented over 900 Hollywood films pre-9-11. And he found that of those 900 films, only 12 films had positive characters. The rest consisted of films such as the childhood television show Alibaba, Mad Dog of the Desert, that depicted a man in Arab clothing barking at the moon and running around like an animal. These are the sort of images that we're feeding to children. These are the sort of images that we're absorbing ourselves. So it makes sense then, in the months following 9-11, when the number of hate crimes rose to past 700, that nobody lifted a finger or bothered to pay attention. It makes sense then, that in this day and age, in a post-election era where rhetoric has escalated the rate of hate crimes against Muslims 65% more than it has ever been in this country, that no one's really paying attention to the situation. I used to go out of my way to try to make myself more human to people. I would engage in dialogues, and every time I entered a space where my identity was up for conversation and debate, I went out of my way to get emotional. I shared and I shared, and I don't think that there was anything left in me to share at some points, and sometimes people still didn't really get it. There would be days where I'd walk into a class on Islamic feminism and listen to the girl to my right tell me how she couldn't understand how I could be anything other than oppressed, while I sat there telling her that there were years and years of literature and scholarship on how women could feel, feel not oppressed and feel actually empowered while wearing the hijab. She ignored the stories that I told her about my experiences with prejudice in the United States and chose instead to focus on what she thought she knew about me. And there were some things my efforts at humanizing myself to even my friends couldn't break past. This past election cycle, for example, 
When presidential candidates made comments about creating registries for Muslims, my friends made jokes. When I voiced concerns about Senator Carson's commitments to a Muslim never becoming president, they rolled their eyes and shook their heads at me. Now we're sitting here, weeks away from what could possibly be the second time that we've ever had a Muslim registry ban enacted in our country. What could possibly be the first time that we no longer have Muslims allowed to enter our country as immigrants. And I'm wondering whether these friends are still laughing, whether they're still able to crack jokes about the things that they didn't take seriously the first time I mentioned them. This election cycle, I thought a lot about that phrase, silence as betrayal. I thought a lot about that quote from Martin Luther King, the one that says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I think it's more than silence, it's apathy. It's a refusal to care. It's being numb and passive rather than active. It doesn't matter what your politics are. It doesn't matter what side of the debate you're on or what debate you're having in a room is. You're forgetting that the people around you are human. They're flesh and blood. We can't progress as a society if we're ignoring the voices around us because we don't call a problem a problem anymore. And we normalize it. We give problems permission to exist. These days, apathy can start with something as simple as changing your profile picture. It's as simple as using a hashtag once for the sake of a friend or a popular social movement. It's 10 minutes spent typing a post on Facebook that electronic algorithms will prevent anyone else from ever seeing but your friends. It's attending a women's march and not sustaining your actions or confronting the recurring and long-lasting violence on trans women's bodies specifically black trans women's bodies. It's joking about your friend's concerns. It's never engaging with another political point of view. And it's going to a candlelight vigil, holding a candle, and leaving nothing in your memory but the smell of smoke when you go to work the next day. So how do we do it? How do we sustain solidarity? How do we start listening to the voices of the people around us who we've put on mute for so long? I think I found the answer last Saturday. I was at the Women's March on Washington and I saw this group of women huddled around a group of hijabi women. And usually when I see a group of hijabi women, I tend to notice because they all look like me, which is a rarity at times. Uh, but these women were surrounding this group and they were asking questions about the headscarf and they were asking to try it on. And some of them seemed pretty skeptical or hesitant to touch the cloth or even the scarf. But then there was this dude who was behind the girls who sort of seemed really impatient and then ended up just plowing forward, grabbing a like, piece of cloth and putting it on his head. And he'd done it the completely wrong way. He had cloth on his face. It was all backwards. He looked ridiculous. And I was sitting there like, this poor guy doesn't know what he's doing. And I just started laughing. And then I wasn't really laughing anymore and I was kind of crying. See, when I looked at him, I wasn't just seeing this man wearing a scarf. When I looked at those women, I wasn't just seeing those women. I was thinking about how last week, when I went to the movie theater, a woman pulled her child closer to her chest as though I was dangerous, and no one said anything. I thought about how my lab partner first year waved at my face and told me she couldn't handle all of this, and no one spoke up in response. I thought about the man who followed me home on the evening of 9-11-2015, whom no one stopped. I thought about 
about the drunk on the corner who pressed me against a window and told me he heard Muslim women did it better in bed, whom no one protected me from. I thought about the professor in the College of Arts and Sciences who has tenure, who still refers to Middle Easterners as barbarians. I thought about my classes, where students look me in my face and make comments about my identity as though all of me is nothing as though all I am is a piece of cloth wrapped around a faceless face. I thought about my friend, sitting there Googling DACA while the rest of us laughed, Googling DACA like her life depend upon it, while her tears streamed down her face, tears that we didn't see. And I thought about that man, with the scarf on his head, paying attention not really knowing what he was doing, but plowing forward because that was what any decent person would do. Plowing forward because the women with the hijabs weren't people to answer questions, they were people. And he wanted to show them that they didn't have to feel uncomfortable or explain themselves to everyone because that's not what allyship is about. If you wanna be an ally, you have to be an avenue for empathy. And sometimes that empathy has to be blind empathy. Stop plugging in. Don't wait until your friends are begging you to listen to their stories. Don't wait until they're asking you to believe them. Don't ask them all of the questions that you could Google in an hour. Solidarity is about a collective movement for the sake of something larger than oneself. To be allies, we need to be active. We need to attend Black Lives Matter rallies. We need to sign our names up on the inevitable Muslim registry that might come out one day. We need to attend protests. We need to go to cultural events. We need to dedicate ourselves to this wild, reckless notion that our fellow human beings, regardless of who they are, what their politics are, or where they come from, deserve to be loved in the way that our parents have loved us, deserve to be nurtured in the way that our parents have nurtured us. We have to pick up this idea and run with it. There will often be times like the days following the election, when the personal becomes political and minority students feel averse to other students. There will be times when certain spaces feel unwelcome, unfriendly to outsiders who have never felt what another person has felt. But we cannot allow our differences to divide us in a time when policies being implemented are actively seeking to remove some of us from the category of American. Humanity comes first. It has to. That's what I've seen in my time as chair in MRC, and that's what I'm seeing now. The times when we were most effective, the times when we were able to make the greatest difference and impact the most people was not when we alone were speaking with administration, was not when we alone were advocating for ourselves, but when we had tens of dozens of other people standing with us in a protest outside of Old Cabell Hall, where we stood and held signs that told the world how we felt about the identities that were used against us. Those volunteers were 400 strong. And that's just the start of it. This world is full of apathy and long silences. But it's also full of people who make me and others of similar identities feel more human than we've ever felt. I've met people like my friend Lauren, who signed herself up to be part of the planning committee for World Hijab Day without knowing a thing about the culture or the identity. She just wanted to be there and to learn and to listen and to support. I met people like my friend Saul, 
who uses his voice to speak up for the friends that he has who don't have voices to speak up for themselves. I met people like my friend Julia, who stood behind the sidelines as a person who passes, looks visibly white, but still holds a minority identity, and did everything she could during our campaign this past semester to ensure that people felt safe, felt welcome, and felt like they belonged, even though sometimes people didn't really make her feel like she belonged. And a lot of times I meet people like you, young future professionals, and my hope is that you take this somewhat desperate, somewhat chunky message from an undergraduate who doesn't really know much and translate it into your lives in the languages spoken in your homes, by your friends, in the thoughts in every part of your mind, that you should never be apathetic to the things going around you, that you should never relegate a conversation to its statistics or its politics, because that's apathy. And that's betrayal. So act, speak up, be present, volunteer, litigate, legislate, lobby, do whatever it is that you intend to do with your life, but do it well and do it with people in mind. Thank you. I just want to take a deep breath um, and say that I feel charged and fairly emotional. Um, so don't be surprised if I start crying. Um, as someone who was a professor for eight years, I um, went to work every day hopeful because of people like Atia. Um, and I would always say to them, don't lose hope in doing good and don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. So thank you for challenging us um, and inspiring us and sharing your story, um, for challenging us to walk in empathy, an avenue of empathy as allies, and to not give problems permission to exist. Um, so yeah, I'm overwhelmed, and I hope you are in a good way, too. Um, also, um, fair warning, I'm a preacher's grandkid. So I do a lot of alliteration and kind of sing-songy stuff. So it sounds like half political science lecture, half sermon. Just be cool with it. Um, so I'm going to speak about um, the theme of today. Um, and my remarks I've entitled, From Betrayal by Silence to Embodied Solidarity. In November 2015, one year before the US presidential elections, I was concerned as a political science professor and grieved personally about a country that masquerades as the beacon of human rights in the world, and yet whose presidential politics had devolved not merely to pandering, which is per usual, but to blowhard buffoonery that propagates and elevates the hate that resides in people's hearts and that remains systematically ensconced in our structures and our systems. Proliferating in public conversation was hatred toward immigrant, fellow citizen, black, brown, LGBTQIA, Asian, poor, rich, Muslim, Sikh, native, and disabled. I was concerned about presidents of colleges named after what the country of human rights purports to spread across the globe, liberty, when we indiscriminately kill babies with drones and call it collateral damage, with the president of that college down the road in Lynchburg imploring his students to exercise their liberty to, quote, 
end those Muslims before they end us, end quote. That is, get certified to carry a deadly weapon on campus, by the way. And so is the state of our moral and political imaginations at a Christian college. That's the world my nephew gets to inherit. In the immediate aftermath of Jerry Falwell Jr.'s bombast, I was reminded by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a manifesto that says, righteousness must result in justice for the most vulnerable of our society to walk a mile in my neighbor's hijab. And since it was the Christian season of Advent, I was reminded of the incarnation, God become flesh to suffer with us, to suffer like us, to identify with the oppressed. So in a Facebook post heard round the world on December 10th, 2015, I declared my intent to wear a hijab in solidarity with my Muslim sisters during Advent as an act of what I termed embodied solidarity. Given the political landscape, Muslims were, and remain, the political zombies du jour. Be afraid, very afraid. So many Christians actually scarcely winced as a fellow Christian instigated the murder of Muslims and instead of walking with Muslims in their distress, rather asked me why I wasn't standing with persecuted Christians in the world. Choosing to subject myself to the denial of civil liberties and bodily assault that my Muslim sisters suffer was not religious sacrifice. It was embodied solidarity, placing my body among the oppressed. Wearing the headscarf for the month of Advent was a time of devotion to what Jesus did as a matter of course, and what Christians like me are called to do as a matter of course. That is, place ourselves in the midst of oppression so as to walk with the most vulnerable of our time. For Jesus, that was women, lepers, Gentiles, prisoners, those whose bodies society, and more glaringly, religion, had declared unclean. Not fit for religion, not fit for politics, not fit for citizenship. They were relegated to the margins of society, but Jesus saw them. And Jesus moved toward them. He went out of his way to meet them. He touched them. He healed them, he fed their physical bodies, and in the process, he affirmed their souls as the souls to be emulated, the souls that were poor, not financially per se, but humble, poor in spirit by virtue of their oppression. That's why I wore a hijab during that season of Advent, because human decency predicated on human dignity demands that all humans stand in solidarity with their beleaguered neighbor. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. The blood of the young Muslim students killed in North Carolina in 2015 cries out from the ground. Do you hear it? So when I wore a hijab, I thought that it was a damn shame that a black Christian woman working at an evangelical college called the country to attention by complicating the lines of solidarity. My mom said, Larisha, you're dividing Christianity. I was like, Mom, I didn't do that. It was already there. And that's what we're here to discuss today, those demarcating lines. You know, the lines drawn in the sand around our bodies, the litmus tests employed for your faith, the poll taxes reserved for certain people. I embraced embodied solidarity, and all hell broke loose. So I'm here to tell you today that seeking solidarity in a divided America 
may mean that people accuse you of being divisive. Peacemaking is usually seen as divisive. No activist worth her salt is loved by everyone. Ask Linda Sarsour. They ruffle feathers. They run money changers out of temples. They write letters on toilet paper and smuggle them out of jail. They sing while imprisoned. How annoying is that? And sometimes they get killed for their peaceful actions and message. So I'm here to remind you that embodied solidarity in a divided societal and political and religious space is costly. Were it not, it would cease to be solidarity. Don't worry, I'm here to encourage you too. But I will tell you the truth. You will be without honor if you seek solidarity. These are some ways that I think you might seek solidarity. Number one, pray dangerous prayers. The first prayer that the universe pricked my soul to pray as I embarked on my first tenure track job was a two-parter. It was, may I never feel comfortable. And the second part related to the first, may I always be open to leave when prompted by you. God, universe. You know, not like force out or something, like a lightning bolt, monumental type of like exit that happened anyway. However, that was my prayer. The second prayer, Concern the state of my posture toward injustice. I shared this prayer with my students in all of my classes. As a political scientist, I study, I read, I write about some pretty depressing stuff, you know, all the injustice in the world. And government's only task, only task, is to do justice in the world. But Congress can't usually pass a damn budget. Well, here's the prayer. Almighty God, who has created, created us in thine own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom. Help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice among peoples and nations to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And this comes from the Book of Common Prayer. And again, as a political scientist, who is concerned about the things of justice. Uh, this was the prayer that I began with my classes every semester. Willing to stand against oppression at all costs, this is a road that leads to death. My favorite MLK speech is his final speech. I've been to the mountaintop. And he looks over, and you know what he says in that speech? I don't know if I'll make it there. This is the day before he is assassinated. He's speaking at a sanitation strike about justice for the poorest and the most oppressed, those who pick up our trash along the streets. And he said, I'm not sure I'll get there with you. But he also said in that speech, let us develop a kind of dangerous, dangerous unselfishness. How do you cultivate that kind of dangerous unselfishness? Pray dangerous prayers. So my question for you, are you using your freedom reverently for dangerous, unselfish shit, for the sake of embodied solidarity. Second, move to places where suffering bodies abound. Not to represent them, not to speak for them, but to do more listening and learning and lamenting about their suffering. The more you know about suffering and suffering people, the more you are broken by the suffering that you don't see the suffering that you refuse to see, the suffering that you go out of your way to ignore. 
the parts of town that you don't drive through. And the more you sit in the mire of oppression, the more you see suffering bodies and hearing in groups all around you. Number three, lose your presbyopia. Now, I said that with my Oklahoma accent. I'm not sure if that's exactly how doctors would say it. But presbyopia is most commonly referred to as tunnel vision. I took an optic test this week at the eye doctor. You zone in on a little light, and a machine flashes faint lights far in your peripheral visual field. It irked the hell out of me that I couldn't see all the little lights going off all the time. And the, eye, and the one eye that I was sure I had performed the best on, I had actually performed marginally on. Almost failed the test. Expand your peripheral vision to see and include those on the margins. There is no such thing as invisible injustice or opaque oppression. The question is, who do you see? Number three, listen to and privilege the perspective of the oppressed. Once you see the oppressed and the suffering, you need to begin to listen to them. The oppressed have voices and agency and wisdom that those in relative positions of privilege lack. I don't care what your socioeconomic background is that you come from, by virtue of being a student at this university, you possess privilege, not just in this country, not just in your communities, in the world. By all standards, we are privileged. The oppressed don't need your, um, I'm sorry, I missed that, but do you hear their voices? Or are their voices too shrill for you? So I wanna give an example from the Women's March that may um, touch some of you and, and feel um, difficult to listen to. But one of the things in the aftermath of the Women's March has been some pushback from women of color and documenting the lack of women of color who showed up. Um, and there are reasons for that. Um, since abolition and suffrage, um, white women and women of color have separated, in part because in the abolition movement, white women said, we'll pursue our rights first before the rights of black Americans. So, we call this white fragility. It's hard to hear black and native women talk about their experiences of oppression at the march. Why are they so mad at us? We're allies. Boo-hoo, woe is you, white lady, it's not about you. You don't want to be an ally, or do you? You need to listen. That was number two. Many of you don't really want to hear the perspective of the oppressed. It hurts, but we live it. Get over it. Life is hard. Abdicate your privilege. A perspective of the oppressed humanizes us and our public policies by unmooring us from the whitewashing of history that says progress is an upward moving trajectory. It gives us a more realistic remembrance of history and we see how it's the same oppressive shit over and over and over again. The most marginalized communities among us don't need privileged elites who have misrecognized their humanity for so long to save them. They don't need your misinformed policy wand to wave over them. They need their voices amplified. Number four, develop your prophetic voice. MLK was effective, and there's a great book by a historian that says um, that really what made the civil rights movement move 
were the prophetic words of MLK. It wasn't the language about liberalism. It wasn't the I have a dream speech. It was the prophetic words that propelled the movement forward. So what about your voice? Your voice does matter. I just told you to listen to a perspective of the oppressed, but how do you develop your own prophetic voice? You need to train your heart in order to train your voice. Train it to hurt like hell and hurt some more. That's how you develop a critical consciousness, which is merely a heart that breaks and bleeds at the sight of suffering and injustice. While this world needs more people, what this world needs is more people interested in being prophets, simply those who rail against injustice by telling the truth about injustice, than making prophets. Embodied solidarity goes beyond raising prophetic voices to a power structure that only hears special interests. It goes to sitting in the mire and the muck of oppression. I think this is number five. Live in the tension of theory and praxis. But don't ruinate for too long. That's what we're trained to do in law school and graduate school is overthink stuff. The world needs more than elites and privileged politicians and policy wonks to create programs based on their misunderstanding of the plight of the vulnerable forgotten. Trump has something right. Government is supposed to act on behalf of the forgotten, if you listen to his inauguration speech. He did say that. Um, those who have been forgotten because their bodies seem okay on the surface and the government throws them half a bone every month so they can still die of diabetes because they can't afford their medication. Next, abdicate your privilege and power. This is a conundrum wrapped in an enigma while simultaneously using it on behalf of the least and the last. So abdicate your power and privilege, but use it on behalf of the least and the last. Raise holy hell. Don't develop privilege paralysis. Just because you're privileged, don't sit around wringing your hands, thinking you can't do anything. What do you do? You go back to the beginning, sitting in the mire and the muck and learning from the oppressed about how best to amplify their voices. See people, number six, seven, see people, not zombies. I'm speaking to a plethora of law students. I have a sister who has argued before the US Courts of Appeal. She served as a general counsel for one of the five civilized tribes and has done pro bono work representing an innocent man on death row in my home state of Oklahoma. So I think I get lawyers, but I am not convinced that what the US needs is a rights revolution. We need to apply them to the notion of the minority and the oppressed folk for whom the Fourth Amendment is a farce. The UN Declaration of Human Rights is legally rather sound. One of the youngest countries in the world, East Timor, has one of the most liberal constitutions in the world, but little justice. We have human rights on paper. What we need, friends, is a recrudescence of human dignity. Double down on dignity. Law students, where is human dignity in the Constitution? Nowhere. But I can tell you, it's the first pillar of the South African Constitution forged in the aftermath of apartheid. We need a revolution, all right. And while I'm a political scientist, the revolution we need is one of the heart. Embodied solidarity is a high calling. It means never making peace with oppression. But it also simply means seeing people in their oppression. Human dignity means that we would elevate the souls of others as the, um, 
as Ubuntu does. Note that I said, sorry, I lost my place. In a country where 25% of Muslim school children are bullied by their own teachers, I'm compelled to ask a question. Will the preying upon the most vulnerable and other indicators of our dysfunctionality compel us to aspire to the higher angels of our nature, our collective nature? I said collective nature because we are not individuals. In the words of an African proverb, Ubuntu, I am because we are, and we are because I am. In the words of MLK, we are caught up in a seamless web of mutuality. In the words of Brother Malcolm X, I believe in human beings and that all human beings should be respected as such, regardless of their color. The world needs embodied solidarity. Since suffering takes our whole being, so does solidarity with suffering. Solidarity is just suffering with, with our bodies. And this requires moving from our comfort zones to war zones, utter abandon to being radically for the other, those who have been counted out, written off, and killed off by the state, by us, by our intransigence. Only with such a posture can reconciliation of human to human and human to the earth begin. Only then can justice abound. How do we, how do we heal divides? Not by meeting in the middle, by meeting in the places of oppression, by meeting on the margins. We are to come to the table as the disempowered ones, not as social justice crusaders, but as fellow pilgrims, seeking to grow in our ability to see oppression by suffering with. Friends, never make peace with oppression. Thank you.